Welcome to Travels Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Ace Cultural Tours. Violet. Today we're heading to the 1960s to meet the man who tried to uncover the difference between fate and coincidence. Have you ever had a feeling that something would happen before it did? Or seen something you couldn't make sense of? In 1967, the psychiatrist John Barker set up a bureau in the offices of the London Evening Standard newspaper, where members of the public could phone in and report their premonitions. Over the course of its brief two-year existence, the Premonitions Bureau collected countless sinking feelings and strange suspicions. They were categorised, logged, and when a disaster occurred, they were cross-referenced to see how accurate they had been. As our guest today, Sam Knight, shows in his new book, the Bureau not only gives us insight into British social history, but into the human condition as well. Sam Knight is a British journalist who has covered subjects as diverse as the plans for the death of the Queen, sandwiches and late capitalism. His work for the Long Read section of The Guardian and for The New Yorker has become influential and widely shared. Artemis spoke to Sam about his brilliant new book just last week. Sam, thanks so much for joining us today on Travels Through Time. This book is so extraordinary, it's so kind of haunting and, yeah, fascinating. So thanks for coming on to tell us all about it. Thank you for having me. This book is about, in my eyes, the kind of making sense of the difference between coincidence and fate or whatever you want to call it, something greater, something more um, supernatural. And when I was reading it, I was kind of thinking about how we seem to be living at a time, moment in time where like disasters and evil seems ever more apparent and frequent. I was, that was making me think about why did you feel like now was a good time to write this book about how we as a human race make sense of disaster? Huh, interesting. So I wish I, I wish I could have like a nice sort of cause and effect for that. But the truth is, is that I kind of found out about the sort of the bones of this story you know, quite a while ago, you know, the best part of the best part of 10 years ago. But for lots of reasons, it was quite hard to, to find the the time to do the research or sort of, or kind of have the little, you know, breakthroughs that I eventually kind of got to, to piece it together. But it's definitely been in my mind quite strongly, while I was writing the book, which was during, which was during the pandemic. And, you know, and the pandemic was a sort of almost a a perfect example of a terrible disaster that was, you know, how many times did we hear the word, you know, unprecedented, you know, it was this kind of thing out of a blue sky. Um, And yet at the same time, when you looked at the, you know, strategic risk documents for the country, it was the sort of number one worst and also kind of most likely thing to happen would be some sort of airborne pandemic. And it's a sort of pattern that you come across again and again with disasters. On the one hand, this thing struck us and we had no way of foreseeing it. Or the alternative version is, look, actually, if you look carefully, 
there were all these clues and there were people who either had instincts or more than instincts, you know, had, you know, strong, a strong kind of estimate, you know, based on some incomplete data that something might be about to, to happen. So I think the kind of the human brain kind of it goes in these two directions. On the one hand, it consoles itself that, you know, inexplicable things happen and there's nothing we can do about them. And there's the other part, which is, ah, no, we can control our fate. We can we can make better preparations. We should have seen all these signs that, that something was coming. And you sort of can't predict which way you're going to go at any at any given moment, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. You use so many different kind of disciplines and area of study to throughout the book to like explain um or make sense of 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 these of these um disasters or these coincidences like you draw on psychology and philosophy and medicine like why do people who feel like they're going to die before they go into a surgery often do die because and you know what's the kind of medical theory behind that or theories of perception and time and so so much stuff and I was fascinated to find out how did you marshal all of these different disciplines um, into the book? So I had, you know, I had a few rules um, to help me sort of set the kind of the parameters. And one, you know, the the story of the Premonitions Bureau is a very British story, you know, and it veers quite deeply into the uncanny and the supernatural and then kind of out again and into sort of medicine and, 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 and science and how those things rub alongside each other. And I wanted it to like most I broke the rules obviously but the rules were that I wanted most of the research to be about a British history of premonition and prophecy and the supernatural and precognition and seeing things before they happen and to just try and operate in that sort of social and historical context I didn't want to be kind of drawing on you know African or Maori beliefs about these questions, which, you know, like prophecy and, you know, fate and coincidence, these are pretty universal questions. So I wanted to kind of keep it within quite a kind of a British domain. I also wanted the action of the story, which takes place in the 60s, to to always remain quite rooted in that period. So I didn't I didn't want to bring in too much stuff from after that period. I mean, I broke the rules around science and neuroscience because I kind of wanted to reflect that some of these things bounce off some quite contemporary ideas uh, in those fields. But so I so I had so I had some rules to kind of to limit the research because it was just so much fun, and I just had to stop at some point and and try and and try and and try and write the thing down. But I, you know, I I came to this subject really determined to try and remove it from the world of the paranormal which is often a place where people are either trying to desperately convince you that something magical is real or that it can't possibly be the case and I I just wanted to extract the story from that way of talking about it and just place it alongside is it history or is it you know Freud's relationship with telepathy which I find really fascinating or you know, the way our brain constantly makes predictions all the time, or as you mentioned, the nocebo effect, you know, if I, if I say something as bad is going to happen to you, does that have a, a physiological impact? Um, so I kind of, I wanted to, 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 to take the story and sort of nibble at it from all these different directions. That's so interesting, because 
I really see what you mean about trying to lift it out of like lift it out of the supernatural so that it's not just like all of these spooky things happened and who knows but like the thing that's so interesting about it is that even though you are rooting it in things which we we kind of think of as like real or objective you still get this of this effect of of something quite haunting or something quite like mysterious even though you're referring to things which we think of as very real like how the human brain works or like you know things like that um i guess it just makes me think about how there is so much magic and mystery even in even in things which are just like explainable or seemingly explainable, yeah yeah for know? sure and i kind of um there were parts of the book where i i wanted to use you know everything in the book is factual everything in the book is true but i sort of wanted to use that information at times almost in a kind of slightly like dizzying way to make readers like myself think oh wait is that the answer like does that explain it oh no wait but what what's that what's that got to do with it? oh is this going to lead me there or like oh is a pattern forming here you know i i i tried to um to maybe like cheekily use some of the sort of totally factual material but in in a in a you know potentially slightly disorientating way and a a reviewer picked up on this the other day and saw exactly what i was trying to do and said they really didn't like it uh, so <laughs> it was like one of those things where i was like really gratified oh someone saw this like you know this this device and uh yeah really didn't didn't work for them at all but anyway <laughs> hopefully oh, well, it'll work hopefully it'll work for some people Oh, well, uh, uh, yeah, it worked. It worked for me. <laughs> it worked for me. So, Sam, you're a journalist and I really wanted to ask you about how do you feel like your career as a journalist informed your writing of this book? Um, and do you think that it aided you in any way? Well, I'm sure it did. But... Um, yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I kind of, you know, I guess people all approach these these kind of projects from from different directions you know I've, I've I've so I'm a magazine writer I've been doing that for quite you know for quite a while now and and so I've wanted to write a book for a long time and to just be able to write something longer so I was pretty much kind of itching to itching to do that so in a sense that's doing something different but you know I obviously was like really informed by by how I by how I do my by how I do my work I think that I think my journalism probably helped me to sort some of the the research a bit because I'm just used to working on a bit of a deadline so that probably helped me not get totally overwhelmed I think I was also probably pretty scared too scared of facing a completely blank page you know it was all it was always quite clear in my mind that this would be a confined, defined beginning, middle, end, short book. And I, that's probably the only way I could have written it. Like, I think just the idea of like, oh, I'm just going to launch into a non-fiction explanation, exploration of prophecy or something would have just done my head in. But mm. so I think, so I think my kind of, my training probably made me limit the, limit the, the domain if you know what I mean just to kind of keep it keep it manageable but I think I don't know I, 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 I it's a really it's a really interesting question I mean I kind of for, for whatever reason it makes me think of going through the archives of Shelton Mental Hospital which is a, a sort of large Victorian asylum just outside the town of Shrewsbury where the main character in the book John Barker worked as a doctor and just going through those 
going through those archives and just being totally engrossed by the sort of the day-to-day reality of the hospital and trying to bring that to life as well as I could and trying to track down old nurses and doctors who'd worked there and porters and getting their kind of their their sort of testimony of what it was like to to work there at that time was just that felt to me completely the only way to do it whereas someone coming from another discipline that might not be their priority or, or the first thing that they you know that they thought of I think what it's making me think of is um, there's a book, it was actually the first ever Travels Through Time interview I did. Um, this author called Charles Emerson, who wrote a book called The Crucible, which is about like the period, I think it's like 1917 to 1922 or something like that. But the book is essentially written like each year and each season, almost day by day. And he'll like, he wrote in the, from the perspective of a person who was alive at that time. So one paragraph will be Lenin and be written in the present tense in, in quite a kind of like, journalistic way like he's reporting and then the next minute will be like Josephine Baker and so on it has this amazing sense of being like in that period and your book really reminded me of that because I felt like I was really I think the kind of because it's so precise and it's like because you have to be like this disaster happened at this time on this day and exactly 12 hours before this person had said and it creates this amazing sense of being kind of watching the action unfold in real time, almost as if you were reading it, like a piece of reporting, I guess. Oh, well, that's nice. But I think I was, I was probably very, uh, in fact, I know I was because I wrote it. I was very conscious about that particular question of time, you know, and and moments and coincidence and like, oh, look, the very morning of this or the day after that or the because uh, because that's how we internalize and sort of tell stories to ourselves afterwards kind of thing so I think all those all that kind of precision around time was kind of yeah was sort of was deliberate because it was because it was right there you read the you know official tribunal investigation into the Abavan coal disaster which is a sort of big incident in the book in October 1966 and you know everything is to the minute and I, and I was definitely kind of keen to replicate that. Mm. Well speaking of going back into time <laughs> Sam um, on this podcast you're allowed to choose a year that you would like to travel through time to so if you could travel through time what year would you choose? I would choose the year 1967. Brilliant. Why would you like to travel to 1967? Well, my 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 choices were quite limited because the the action in the Premonitions Bureau actually takes place over this very concentrated period of time. It's just it's around eighteen months, um, and it goes from the autumn of nineteen sixty six to the summer of 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 nineteen sixty eight. So nineteen sixty seven is the real kind of core heart of the of the action, and it's also you know just one of those uh ridiculous mid 60s years where when you look back there's so much is you know so much is happening and 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 sort of and also and i found this consistently through my research for the book things happening seemingly in two two different worlds two halves of the 20th century you know you've got the kind of the emergence of 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 total modernity coexisting with the the embers of 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 the second world war and Mm. and 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 really an earlier society and those those two things kind of rubbing against each other sort of daily uh and so and so that's why it's sort of it's it's the center it's the center of the book but it's also this kind of hingy 
hingey moment in the in the 20th century which made it so interesting to to write about and and do you think that that tension between that that hinge that you've just described is that a was that a precondition for the Premonitions Bureau existing? Like, I was interested to know if you thought that something like... It seemed unlikely that something like the Premonitions Bureau could have been set up now. Yeah, right, I, I think so, and definitely kind of in the form in the form that it took. And these things were, you know, really encapsulated in the figure of, of Barker, who's the psychiatrist who sort of... who dreamed up the experiment. And he's exactly one of these characters. You know, he's born in... 1924 his father served in the um the transport corps in the first world war and had supernatural experiences on the the western front and was sort of very much part of that sort of psychical research and sort of rise of sort of british spiritualism in the sort of the opening years of of the 20th century like that's the culture that 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 barker is brought up in you know he goes to Cambridge University uh, he's going on ghost hunting expeditions during the second world war he's kind of totally got that 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 foot in in an in an earlier realm and yet his his work and his practice as a doctor is at the progressive end of psychiatry in the 1960s is this time of of radical reform you know Enoch Powell is not remembered for his uh, role as the Secretary of State for Health, but early 1960s he announces the the demolition of the kind of the Victorian asylum system and the move to community based mental health. So that basically means we're going to take apart these these huge, almost self sufficient um, hospitals dotted around the British countryside. And Barker works in one of those at a time when, you know, they're taking the locks off the doors, they're taking down the walls, they're experimenting with newfangled things like psychology uh, and occupational therapy and, and, and pharmaceutical drugs, which have enabled the kind of treatment of psychosis really from the mid-50s onwards. So he's, 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 he's this person with, you know, with a, with a childhood in the in the in the shadow of the first world war who's who's practicing a form of of medicine and and science which is sort of recognizable you know still now so he's he he himself is has got sort of two parts of his brain in sort of different parts of different parts of the century and the and the, and the premonitions bureau like it's such a was such a kind of fascinating subject to me because it kind of it holds those two things inside it it holds this kind of this um firm belief in the possibility of of precognition and people being able to see things before they can happen with an aspiration to feed it all into a computer and to tap into the mass subconscious of the british public this was barker's ultimate dream and see if we could scan uh the dreams and forebodings of the british public to find peaks and patterns in the information and if that converges on a subject could that you know emit an official warning to stop you know a plane crash or some other form of disaster which is kind of completely completely nutty but also sounds to my mind like identical to you know a social network and the way that we all as a you know human species now pour our feelings into data which is then collected and studied and measured for all sorts of things so it's sort of he 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 embodied those 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 two parts of the those two parts of the century and and and, and so did the so did the project so i think it kind of you know i think yeah it there's a 
yes is the answer to your question. <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. And I think you've perfectly described the world that we're about to kind of dive into and all of its contradictions and all of those different those different things sort of straining against each other. So would you like to tell us where we are for our first scene in 1967? So for our so for our first scene, I mean, it's so fun to do this because this is like what you don't really... When I was writing, when I was writing the book, everything every, I was I was just adamant that everything in the book comes from a piece of paper or a piece of audio or someone's memory or you know I really I I did not allow myself to do what we're going to do on the podcast, which is why it's really fun. But I did not do you know the light streaming across the room, you know the the this the this the this because because I wasn't there because I didn't see it. Do you see what I mean? But this idea kind of allows allows me to kind of play play with that a bit. So on the the morning of January the 4th, 1967, in the newsroom of the Evening Standard newspaper, uh, which is overlooking a kind of courtyard just off Fleet Street. And the reason why I want to be at the Evening Standard is because there was Barker, the psychiatrist, who was the sort of the brains behind the project. And then there was a man called Peter Fairley, who was the science correspondent of the Evening Standard, who was the sort of publicist. And they used the pages of the Evening Standard to call for premonitions from the British public. And the idea of the project was that for a year, people could send in dreams and feelings and visions about anything to the Evening Standard, where these letters and telegrams and telephone calls would arrive at the desk of this man called Peter Fairley, who normally wasn't there because he was normally in a restaurant or mucking about or in the States uh, reporting on the space programme or in the USSR and writing about the Soviet space programme. So he was a real, his, his name is not well known now, but he was, you know, he presented the moon landings on ITV he coined the phrase the brain drain. He was a sort of really significant science popularizer in the second half of the 60s. And he was brilliant at what he did. Um, and so there's fairly running around and these 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 visions kind of a couple of a couple of day, two or three a day would arrive at, at his desk, which was in the middle of the Evening Standard newsroom, where they would normally get dealt with by his assistant, who's an amazing woman called Jennifer Preston. She was rather beautiful. Uh, she had a sort of long Roman nose and she was a kind of polymath in her way. She'd sort of grown up in grown up in the suburbs. Sort of aunt and uncle ran a vegetarian restaurant in Soho. Uh, she was married to a cab driver and she like taught herself Latin. Uh, she was an avid follower of cricketer. The most single most amazing fact about this person that just always stayed in my mind is that when their house needed mending, when the bricks, when they needed to repoint the bricks on their house, she hired some scaffolding and repointed her own house. I mean, she's just a ridiculously cool person. So Jennifer Preston is there taking these premonitions, sorting them into different categories, you know, rail, royalty, space, you know, and then scouring the newspapers to see whether there is some accident or disaster somewhere in the world that kind of corresponds to people's premonitions. And on this precise morning, January the 4th, 1967, Fairley has written the article announcing the launch of the Premonitions Bureau and inviting readers to send in all their premonitions. And it goes into the first edition of the Evening Standard, which goes to press at 8.50 in the morning. And 
Evening Standard in those days came out about six or seven times a day and the printing presses were in the basement and every time the paper went to print, the whole building would kind of rumble. So you've got this room of about kind of 50 or 100 people, everyone smoking, fluorescent lights, typewriters. Can you imagine the noise? You know, 100 typewriters, telephones ringing. They had this system for sending photos all around the room. So there was this kind of wire shooting around the room constantly taking photos if you were on a really tight deadline you could type you'd type your copy on bits of uh kind of carbon paper i think they were kind of three or even six sheets deep you'd type all those it would get marked up by the subs and if you're in a real hurry you just dropped it through a hole in the floor can you believe it and it just went straight down to the floor below and they'd put it on the papers i mean it's just such a kind of um I sort of wrote about it in the book by kind of tracking down people who worked at the Standard in the 60s. And they all said that when you started working in the newsroom, for the first six weeks, you had this unbelievable headache, like the cigarettes, the noise, the shouting. It was just like impossible. You were like overwhelmed by it. And then it became this like addictive thing and you like couldn't concentrate unless you worked in this kind of cacophony. So there are the like the printing presses rumbling at 8.50. And then at exactly the same time at 8.50, uh, a man called Duncan Campbell, who was a uh, speed record breaker on land and on the water, was trying to break his own water speed record on Lake Coniston in the Lake District. Campbell had been sort of camped up at the lake for months uh, with his hydroplane, which was kind of which was called Bluebird Seven, and it sort of been months of sort of difficulties with the with the engine with the weather he couldn't get round to it it was sort of slightly slightly unclear why he was trying to break the record it was his own record um he was desperate to go 300 miles an hour and the way that water speeds records worked and i i'm guessing still work is you have to do one kilometer in one direction and you record the speed for that kilometre, and then you turn around, and then you go back again and do the other kilometre. And it's the kind of average of those two, average of those two speeds. And Campbell, you know, in a way, like Barker, was a completely, you know, he's a futuristic person, because he's like using the latest technology to kind of break this records. And yet, he's also a kind of antiquated figure at at the same time, you know, his father had broken, had been had done exactly the same thing, had broken records um, on land and on the water. And Campbell was deeply superstitious. He always carried a teddy bear with him uh, called Mr. Whoppet. Uh, he had a kind of St. Anthony, the patron saint of travellers, like screwed into his cockpit. He couldn't stand the colour green. He was, you know, constrained in his in what in in what he did by his kind of superstitious thinking and the night before this speed record attempt that he'd been working forward to for for months he was there'd be like a nightly card game at his uh at the place where he was staying on the lake on the shores of lake coniston and while he was waiting for this game to assemble he played a game of solitaire and played the queen of spades followed by the ace of spades which to him recalled a the same hand that Mary Queen of Scots played herself on the night before her death, and he confided that night in friends that he had, you know, a strong sense that that he was going to die, um, and the next morning he went out and did his record attempt. He did that first kilometer 
comfortably breaking the record and then turned around at the bottom of Lake Coniston to come zooming back. And for whatever kind of unaccountable reason, he didn't leave enough time for the waves to to settle, whether he didn't realise what was happening or he's, you know, he's deeply experienced. But he came racing back and the waves, you know, it was too choppy and his and his boat, at the, you know, catapulted into the into the air and killed him at 8.50, just as this kind of, um, just as the Evening Standard was going to press for the first time to launch the Premonitions Bureau. And so it's sort of semi kind of, well, I don't know whether it's, it's irony or it's something, the Premonitions Bureau was, was pushed out of later editions of the newspaper by the front page story of Duncan Campbell's premonition of his own death. Um, but it also gave the Bureau a kind of um, launch into the, the popular imagination. And the next day, Peter Fairley was on the Today programme, inviting, you know, British people to send in their dreams and forebodings. Uh, and so the, the, the kind of the Premonitions Bureau got off the ground in this sort of slightly uh, grisly and, and uncanny way. Wow. I mean, what is such a... What an amazing story. It's so... It's so eerie, isn't it? I mean, is that true about Mary Queen of Scots playing that hand? Is that something? Or is that a kind of is that folklore? <laughs> I uh, I don't know the answer to that question. No, that's fine. <laughs> um, I, it's an amazing idea. Anyway, I'm gonna I'm gonna believe it. I like it. You described a bit about the kind of atmosphere and the environment of Fleet Street at the Evening Standard newsroom, and I was kind of interested to talk to you a bit about like what would the reaction, what was the reaction to the Premonitions Bureau in that newsroom? Because I'm imagining a kind of newsroom full of like a cynical, kind of like hardy journalists, you know, were, were fairly in Barker kind of like, not laughed out the room because they were successful in setting it up, but was there cynicism about what they were doing? Yeah, I, 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 I wrestled with this as well. And I kind of, and, and I think this is, the past is, you know, is another country, isn't it? In terms of, it's very difficult to separate our own... Was the Evening Standard newsroom full of, like, hard-bitten, cynical, ultra-rational types? Like, seems seems like probably, but, like, was it? I wrestled with this because, you know, the editor of the Evening Standard at that time was this man called Charles Winter. So I feel a little bit sorry for him that he's, like, now basically... The only way to describe him is the father of Anna Winter, uh, the, uh, the, you know, icon of uh, fashion journalism. Um, but Charles Winter was this, you know, distinguished, classy editor. He made the Evening Standard a really wonderful newspaper in the 1960s by hiring incredibly young, brilliant writers. Um, I think there's this ridiculous record. I think like seven, pe- seven people went on to become national newspaper editors. You know, people like Max Hastings and Magnus Linklater and a whole generation of journalists got their start from this talent spotter. Um, Charles Winter and he sort of played this sort of grave his nickname was Chili Charlie this kind of removed debonair figure floating around the newsroom and I yeah I couldn't square it in my mind how would someone like that approve uh, the setting up of the the premonitions bureau um, and so you know I asked you know people who worked with him I was like do you know do you think they kind of slipped this by him do you think he would have signed off on this and like everyone just like without a beat was like oh yeah yeah no he would definitely definitely have done that and and I think it kind of I think there are two things going on I think one is that great or talented newspaper editors or news producers or you know 
people interested in conveying the, you know, the reality of the world are kind of, they're a little bit sort of more open and mad than the rest of us. And I think the other thing, which is probably really important in this context, is that Fairley's work sold newspapers. Um, you know, it, he had a kind of, he had a weekly column, he had this World of Science column, uh, the the market research for the Evening Standard showed that his stuff was really popular among younger readers, you know, he was writing about lasers, he was writing about hovercrafts, he was writing about, as I said, the space race, he was, he was the sort of purveyor of the kind of the new and the wonderful, and so I think that probably gave him quite a lot of kind of capital to, to come into to Winter's office and get him to to sign off on it. And I'm sure there were there were, you know, editors and writers in the in the newsroom who kind of turned their nose up at it. But at the same time, you know, the Evening Standards, you know, in-house astrologer was quite a big deal. And, you know, people's horoscopes and palm readings and it it, it was more it was it was a different mainstream. Do you know what I mean? I'm not gonna make a claim that this stuff was like common or dominant in any way, but it was it was it was a slightly seedy, semi-acceptable part of British intellectual life in the way that just didn't quite have, I don't think, the sort of the sharp division that 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 feels more that feels more contemporary. And I wonder as well if you were describing earlier about Barker's um, dream of being able to kind of marshal all of these premonitions into one big machine that would be able to kind of spout out information and data about upcoming disasters. And I wonder if, um, if maybe, I mean, you can, you can tell listeners what more about what Fairley's motivation was in, in partnering with Barker, but that there's his coming from the position of a journalist. He's thinking, well, let's, let's get to the bottom of this premonition, this thing. Let's see what's really going on. Like, let's take a journalist's view of it and kind of measure it and collect, you know, interview people. And, you know, do you think that was partly what was going on? Yeah, I do. And I think, I think that's also, and I think Barker and Fairley both shared an approach which went along the lines of, you know, you can you can take the sort of the, the scientific ultra-rational position and say this contravenes the second law of thermodynamics, time works in one direction, this is impossible, this is a waste of time, it's actually kind of embarrassing and sort of debasing for people. Or you can take the view that science hasn't figured out the answer to this. And in fact, it's not going to be magic and superstition and palm readers on Brighton Pier who are going to tell you the answer to this but in the same way that breakthroughs in theoretical physics have shown that time doesn't work on a planetary scale it'll be it'll be science and medicine and proper experiment which gets to the bottom of of these questions and so I think that was certainly Fairley's Fairley was like had a it's a total contradiction, but had an almost supernatural belief in science. Do you see what I mean? If science can put people on the moon, then science can explain telepathy. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. Which I think is, that's also the position held by, you know, the Society for Psychical Research at the turn of the 20th century. It, it was like, let's take this out of the hands of the, the wackos and the quackos and let's put this stuff, uh, expose it to the to the scientific method. But then often the people who, want to expose it to the scientific method also have a motive in believing it to be so so then it all gets rather human and complicated and fairly and barker were both were both like that but they i think they would say barker would say finding out whether people can see the future before it happens that's part of psychiatry like that's part of the mind that's part of how we think let's investigate it 
Um, you know, it's obviously not what a lot of his colleagues thought, but he would he would have approached it in that way. Well, that leads us on really, really nicely to our second scene in 1967. So would you like to tell us where we're going next? Yeah, so next we're going to go to Barker's office, which was on the first floor of Shelton Hospital, which was this, you know, very large by contemporary standards, but not particularly large by the standards of the time, uh, mental hospital just a couple of miles outside Shrewsbury on a hill, uh, surrounded by a red brick wall and pine trees. It's a kind of Victorian Gothic building designed by... Uh, so it was this Victorian Gothic asylum designed by George Gilbert Scott, who's the designer of the, the St Pancras Hotel in London, if you sort of recognise that kind of style. And Barker was the deputy medical superintendent, so he was kind of the number two doctor. Uh, there were four other consultants at the hospital, about a 1,000 patients. So he would have had 250 inpatients, and then he also had outpatients that he saw. They divided up the county of Shropshire and also over the border into Wales, into these four geographic areas. So his kind of, his daily, you know, his daily life was walking through the wards of Shelton, um, where a large proportion of the population were elderly, um, many of whom had been locked up there since their teens or their 20s. And about half the people in the hospital received no treatment of any kind at all. No drugs, no psychotherapy, no occupational therapy, nothing. They were just marooned in these wards. So it's this kind of stultifying, suffocating atmosphere of people who are profoundly mentally ill and not getting better and not expected to get better. And Barker was this restless spirit on two fronts. One, trying to, you know, he was part of a kind of generation of younger psychiatrists trying to improve conditions in the hospital. So he, he started working there in 1963. Uh, had, there was another young colleague called David Enoch, um, who was started there in 1961. And between the two of them, they were trying to shake the place up and by shake the place up I mean just basic decency like giving people lockers to store their possessions or opening the windows on the the, the wards uh, taking people for walks taking people to football matches having educational programs for the staff as well as the patients just sort of what seems now very kind of basic and sort of semi-decent conditions for people to live and so Barker is is in his is in his office and and he's he's got this kind of busy heavy workload as a practicing doctor um he's got four young kids at home uh and he's also pursuing his esoteric research agenda uh of his own and that goes from novel treatments in psychiatry Barker was very interested in something called aversion therapy um, which is trying to cure people of their addictions or unwanted 
behaviours through pretty kind of crude sounding methods, you know, infecting them with, injecting them with sort of nausea inducing drugs or electric shocks. So outside his office, he had a fruit machine wired up to the mains. It could give you a 70 volt shock uh, when you tried to play it. And he would use this to try and cure gamblers. And so he had a sort of range of research projects, as I say, ranging from this kind of fairly novel end of psychiatry through to things like the Premonitions Bureau and Precognition. So on this day, which is in late April 1967, it's 10 o'clock in the morning, and Barker is in his office dictating a memo. And the memo is called Some Interesting Predictions and a Possible Death Sentence. And in this memo, Barker is describing a man called Alan Hencher, who was one of the two kind of star percipients, as Barker called them, uh, who had sort of the best track records of predictions and premonitions that they were sending into the newspaper at that time. And in March, 21st of March, Hencher had called Barker at his house, which was just outside Shrewsbury at six o'clock in the morning, and given a vivid vision of a plane crash. And in which he said 123 or 124 people would die. Uh, and then a few weeks later, a plane crash happened on Cyprus uh, at Nicosia, which seemed to kind of contain some of the details of, of Hensch's prediction and in which 124 people were killed. And so there was this immediate kind of correlation between those two things. And that was the first sort of big uh, success in inverted commas of the Premonitions Bureau. And they kind of publicised it in the in the newspaper and so Barker was really interested by Hencher. Hencher's said that his premonitions were accompanied by these terrible headaches and kind of feelings of pain. It wasn't like a like it wasn't a nice thing for him. He worked as a switchboard operator at the post office on the international switchboard so he'd work night shifts and occasionally have these these visions and the night before the moment that we're talking about, so one o'clock that morning, Hencher had called Barker again, and this time Hencher had warned Barker himself that he was worried about his safety and that he'd been worried about him all day and was there a gas supply in his house, what colour was his car, and he was sort of scared that an accident was going to happen to Barker, and Barker asked him, you know, are you, is my life in danger? And Hencher said yes. Um, and Barker was, you know, obviously very shaken by this prediction about his own mortality and was dictating this memo, which was a sort of patient history of Hencher, but also some of his own some of his own feelings about what it was like to undertake an experiment which explored premonitions of the future and then to be be caught up in it yourself. And I'll read a I'll read a few lines from this from this memo. My reactions to this were naturally to be somewhat alarmed. I found it a little difficult to get off to sleep again and have, of course, decided to take extra care while driving. It would be wrong for me to say that I was not frightened by a prediction of this nature. I intend keeping a diary from now on and to record my reactions to this on a daily basis. I suppose anybody who plays about with precognition in this way, to some extent, sticks his neck out and must accept what he gets. So that, this was a kind of, it's a key moment in the, in the book, and it was a key moment in my, 
in my research of this of this subject, you know, I kind of came across this memo in the in an archive in Cambridge University Library, and it's sort of it's sort of probably never happened again. But that thing where you like pulled the old piece of paper out of the brown envelope and was sort of sat there looking at this at, at, at the words of someone kind of facing this very sort of strange and unsettling moment where where their their experiment sort of seems to seems to turn in on them. Well, thank you for describing so um, so evocatively the hospital and the atmosphere, the atmosphere there in Barker's work. Um, I just wanted to ask you about um, something I was kind of struck by when I was reading the book. There's this slight incontinuity in Barker, Barker's kind of thinking about the world and about people that on the one hand, he seems to be a very compassionate man um, who's kind of, you know, like you say, progressive at the forefront of progressive um, psychology, like psychiatry and treatment of people who are mentally ill. um, And also obviously very trusting of the participants in the bureau. But then this thing about the aversion shock therapy felt like very, I don't know, it felt like such a contrast to that. It was making me think, um, you know, that maybe this is a world where people haven't quite figured out what it is that, you know, they're kind of trying out all these different methods. Yeah, I know. I know what you mean. And they kind of and there comes a point, I guess, I think two things. I think one is that people who have slightly irreconcilable parts of their personality are sort of inherently really interesting and kind of uh, attractive to write about. And then I also think there's just the sort of, there's the limits of, of knowing someone, you know, you know, and I guess that's obviously magnified when you're writing about someone in the past, you know, you can, you can read their letters and you can read their memos and you can read their, their work. And I was fortunate enough to have a few kind of audio recordings of Barker so you can kind of hear his hear his voice and yet there are these parts of his of his personality and his behavior which are hard to explain and it's sort of can like can everything be explained do you know what I mean it's like it's a challenge when you're trying to describe someone like what is more what is more truthful to sort of try and find a kind of a through line in someone's personality and thinking or to accept that there are parts of their behaviour that don't go very well together. I kind of, you know, I, d- I don't have the answer to that, but there are certainly sort of parts of Barker's behaviour which I failed to explain. You know, for instance, you know, I mentioned Abavan earlier, which is the sort of, you know, the starting point really for the Premonitions Bureau, and that starts with Barker getting in his car, driving to Wales the day after this horrendous accident and sort of turning up in the village of Abavan the morning after looking for a boy who he'd heard on the radio had escaped from the school uh, which was covered in coal waste and died of shock and and suddenly realizing he's arrived too soon and he's still in the middle of this in the middle of this disaster and on the one hand you know no one asked him to be there he's sort of blundering into this 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 catastrophe on his research project it's kind of it can feel callous and yet you read his description of it and he realized that he was it was inappropriate for him to be there so he's a sort of you know f- for me anyway these these contradictions just made him 
you know, human and and interesting, but that doesn't that doesn't make them any easier to sort of to figure out. Mm, mm, yeah, and I definitely remember there's um there's a bit in the book where you talk about a, a plane crash that um Barker realizes has been or he feels has been prophesized, and he's and the the description of the disaster is so awful, and then the excitement of Barker feels so cold and inappropriate. But um, yeah, he's yeah, excited. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he's excited, and he doesn't sort of bother to hide it. Yeah. Our partners, ACE Cultural Tours, may have just the holiday for you. ACE has over 60 years of experience in group cultural travel, and they offer a wide selection of historical and archaeological itineraries. Their schedule for 2022 and 2023 features tours covering the span of the Roman Empire across all points of the compass, from Algeria to Albania, Anglesey to Anatolia. ACE's tour to the heart of Rome will focus on the imperial period and includes a visit to the fascinating city of Ostia Antica, once the bustling port of Rome. Closer to home, a summer trip to the magnificent remains of Hadrian's Wall will take in sites including Vindolanda, where the famous writing tablets were uncovered. What better way to delve into the past than to follow in the footsteps of those who came before us? Find out more about Travelling Through Time with ACE via their website at www.aceculturaltours.co.uk So I think that leads us on really nicely to our final scene um, in 1967. So where are we going for this final scene? So I had, I had, I had trouble sort of pinning down a precise location for this and i guess it's more a uh, a moment than a than a place but the 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 location is hither green railway station which is a suburban railway station about it's actually where i grew up <laughs> oh is it right okay so you know I better, yeah. <laughs> I better get this bit right 8 miles uh down the track from charing cross uh on the on the train to on the train to kent and the south coast and on the evening of November the 5th, 1967, an express train from Hastings was making its way up the line to Charing Cross when it came off the rails about half a mile before Hither Green Station and skittered along the track for about 500 yards, sort of derailed but upright uh, until it hit a changing point on the tracks and and three of the carriages were flipped onto their side and it was a very serious train crash in, in which 49 people were killed. Uh, it was Guy Fawkes night, uh, so it was kind of, it was dark, it was sort of light rain, there were fireworks going off and the emergency crews, you know, rushed to this train to try and pull people out through the, you know, through the broken windows on on the top part of it. And the reason why this train crash was sort of important in the story of the Premonitions Bureau is that a couple of days earlier, in fact, this was a Sunday evening, on the Wednesday of that week, um, a woman called Kathleen Middleton, who was a music teacher in North London, who was the other star uh, seer for the Bureau, uh, sort of described being sort of overcome by this feeling of depression and kind of sitting down uh, in her kitchen 
and she wrote this note saying that she could see a train crash and she could see the words Charing Cross and she sent this to the Bureau on the Wednesday and then likewise the accident happened at the train came off the rails at 9.16pm uh, that evening and Alan Henshaw was on shift at the post office and he was overcome by this kind of crippling headache and was taken to the, the sick bay where he said, you know, there's been a, there's been a plane crash. Uh, sorry, not a plane crash. There, there, there's, been a, there's been a train crash. And, 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 he was, and he was, of course, right. And to that kind of apparent seeming uh, sort of double prediction of this train crash, you know, was very, uh, is exactly as you described a minute ago, sort of inappropriately exciting to the people involved in the project. And it was actually such a, you know, such a coincidence or such a uh, such a impressive moment that it sort of it was on the front page of the Evening Standard's rival newspaper, uh, the Evening News, and Barker was on his way up to London uh, the following morning, November the sixth, to give a presentation about uh, premonitions and precognition at the Royal Society of Medicine, and. And he said, you know, quite honestly, you know, it staggers me. You know, these people seem to be able to, 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 to crash through the time barrier. And I guess I, I picked I pick this moment because in a way it was a sort of a high point of, of the Bureau in terms of it, it, they really seem to be in their own minds, you know, on the verge of something, of something really, really major. Uh, and I guess that was uh, that was the reason why why I picked that one. Mm. Yeah, I mean, how do you explain Middleton and Hench's premonition? I mean, did you when you were writing it, were you thinking, were you, did, was there any point at any point in the book, in fact, where you were like, maybe this really is there's something going on here, because it's it is eerie, isn't it? Really eerie. So when I was writing the book, I was really informed by a piece of writing um, from another year, which was published in, you know, 1703, uh, which was the description of the Western Isles of Scotland by a man called Martin Martin, in which there's a very good description of second sight among people who live on in the Western Isles of Scotland. And even then, at the sort of the end of the seventeenth century, the dawn of the the eighteenth century, it was you know it was in it was in it was in decline, but for a long time, seeing things before they happen or seeing things at a distance, you know you see, you see your neighbour have an accident in a field, even though they're on the other side of the island, and you rush over there, and yes, they've you know, they've had some kind of farming accident, or you see a funeral procession passing down the lane. Uh, but there's nobody there, but then your, you know, loved one dies a week later or something like that. These were very kind of commonplace and accepted part of how a community perceived reality in the Western Isles. And it didn't mean that they believed every single one, but but when something came to pass in the way that they foresaw it, uh, they didn't deny that either. And I did, I thought of the Bureau as as one of these islands, do you know what I mean? I thought of this as a, as a community of people who, for a short period of time, believed that, that they 
were getting glimpses behind the curtain um, and that that then changed them as people, even though those visions are impossible. Do you see what I mean? It's sort of, you know, and, and, and this is where, you know, things like palm readers and fortune tellers occupy a very sort of marginalised and, and sort of crappy position in our sort of intellectual culture, whereas, you know, prayer and religious belief uh, occupy a different, you know, a different position in our society. Um, and yet I, I don't personally observe, like, an enormous difference between those two forms of sort of magical thinking. Um, and so it's a very garbled answer to your to your simple question of like did this freak you out do you believe in premonitions it was more like this is a a common human way of of making sense of our experience and i just wanted to dignify it by describing it in that in that fashion yeah it's it's not garbled at all it's just really interesting for my last question just before we head back into the present i just wanted to read a very short bit from the book which um I found very um, one of my favourite bits of the book. It's quite near the start. And you write, We confirm meaning to control our existence. It makes life livable. The alternative is frightening. Randomness is banal. It diminishes us. But the truth is that we resist meaning almost as often as we insist upon it. We refuse its presence to make life simpler and to spare ourselves. There was no way we could have seen that coming. We didn't stand a chance. I think that's a really powerful paragraph. And um, it made me think, did writing the Premonitions Bureau make you think differently about the human psyche? It's really interesting. I mean, I kind of, I hope I, I hope I learn something from all my <laughs> reading and whiling, whiling away in, in archives. I think that I, you know, the book started out as an article in the New Yorker, which who I write for a few years ago, and I was really captivated by it and really particularly captivated by this kind of inward turn this kind of moment where where it starts to sort of close in on Barker I just thought it was really uh unusual and kind of creepy um but I was obviously like haunted by the question of like why like why 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 are you doing this like is this really a good way to like spend your time um and it was only one I was researching the book that I I feel like I was able to sort of semi-successfully like latch this strange story of a strange experiment into the 60s onto some of these broader you know these broader questions about psychology and religious belief and and sort of shared a shared consciousness do you know what I mean like it's not the first thing that most people think of when they think about premonitions but to me it hints at a kind of there's something inherently kind of social and collective in it. The idea that you can see something before it happens to me suggests a kind of a shared experience and a shared a shared consciousness, which which I think is weirdly sort of positive and and human. And I think the other big sort of discovery for me when I was doing the research was how how closely premonitions mimic how our how our brains work anyway in a kind of normal healthy ultra rational way which is that we're always we're always predicting the way we perceive reality is the difference between our hopes and our expectations for the thing that's about to happen and what actually happens it's the difference between those two things it's the it's actually the bit that goes into our brain and we perceive as the present moment 
is is actually quite small it's just this kind of this sliver of what neuroscientists call prediction error the difference between what we think is going to happen and what actually happens and and so we're always straining straining it's part of how we survive and have become so like terribly successful as a species uh, is that we we're really really good at using partial bits of information to to figure out what's going to happen next and premonitions are just this kind of this step this step past that they're kind of it's a it's a thing that we long to to have but also we we also know it's impossible and we also know it's kind of dangerous too it's this difference you know like you talked about the difference between fate and coincidence you know fate is kind of consoling in some way but then once everything is preordained like life's not worth living so it's sort of uh it's anyway it's just it's just so close to it's so close to how we how we live and 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 think i guess Mm, that's a wonderful note to end on and yeah we've only like scratched the surface of all of the things that are in the premonitions bureau so i really hope that anyone who's listening is inspired to go and read it um sam before so do I. Yeah, exactly. Sam, before we head back to the present, you're allowed to bring a memento with you from 1967, um, kind of Desert Island Discs style. Um, what memento would you like to bring? It's the files of the Premonitions Bureau. That's what I would. That's what I searched for and searched for and and never and and, and never found the filing cabinets of of Jennifer Preston, which which moved from the Evening Standard to the TV Times, which is where Peter Fairley went to work next, to her house in Charlton in South London, where she cared for them, waiting for the Bureau to to get going again, well into the well into the nineteen seventies. And I think, you know, at some point they just went to the dump. And I'd love to there are a few there were there were thousands, thousands of premonitions from the British public. Uh and that's what I that's what I would retrieve and, you know, make my book much, much longer. <laughs> yeah, an excellent memento. Well, Sam, thank you so much for joining us on Travels Through Time. It's been so interesting to speak to you about this amazing book. Oh, it's really, really kind of you to have me. I've enjoyed it. That was Artemis speaking to Sam Knight about his new book, The Premonitions Bureau, and the year 1967. As ever, you can find out more about this episode and any of our others via our website, tttpodcast.com. I also just wanted to mention that on the 22nd of June, I will be recording a live episode of the podcast with the brilliant young historian Oscar Jensen at the Chalk Valley History Festival. More information is available at cvhf.org.uk. Thanks so much for listening. See you next week.